Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Joining us on the line, Julie, is a school education fellow at the Grattan Institute. And you would have noted that one of the biggest questions over the past few weeks has been what would happen to our schools in the face of the global pandemic. And here in Victoria, the school holidays were extended and brought forward. And recently, Premier Daniel Andrews announced that the vast majority of learning in Term 2 would be done from home. While state schools will reopen as planned this week, the state government has said that only students who absolutely cannot do their learning from home should attend. The implications of these changes are complex and far-reaching, and so we have invited Julie Sonneman on to help us and unpack it all. How are you going, Julie? Hi. Good, thanks, Dylan. Thanks so much for persevering <laughs> the very strange <laughs> times we're living in. Um, yeah. So there have been many competing opinions about how our schools should be managed in these times. What your sense of how this has so far played out on the political stage? Look... I think they've done a pretty good job in managing parents' expectations through this process. I think um, there's there's a uh, obviously in terms of the containment measures that we've now got in place, it makes sense to close schools, um, but it that imposes a big um, cost on a lot of families uh, who now are sort of looking at well, how do I help my my kids help uh, do their learning from home. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, and we know that, you know, certain children in particular will lose from that as well. So a lot of children from quite disadvantaged families, um, often don't have a great learn home learning environment. So there's, it, it's a tricky call about whether to keep schools open or shut. Uh, and I think at this point in time, given where we are in the containment process for the virus, I think it makes a lot of sense, but it's going to be challenging. Yeah, I mean, it's a real balancing act between maintaining integrity in the education system and not disrupting learning, I guess, um, you know, to the point that it's very hard to make that up in the future, but also looking after the health of teachers and, and students throughout this whole process. And I know, um, you know, over the past few weeks before the school holidays, some teachers were understandably questioning why, um, you know, we can't have more than five people at a wedding, but they were still fronting up to work every day. What's your sense of how those kind of health priorities have been managed? Look, I think there, I think as the, the virus has unfolded, I think there has been a lot of pressure on teachers because they're on the front line. I think there could have been more done to, uh, particularly for older teachers, to give them the choice to stand back and to actively encourage schools to, to, to make them stand back because they are at a higher risk. I think because we we haven't known as much about the transmission rates among children with the virus. It's, it has been a really tricky call. There, the best available information suggests that there is low, very low transi- transmission rates between children. Mm. Um, and so if you take that sort of rational hat, you know, actually it is actually there – there have been some countries like Singapore that have kept their schools open throughout this, this process and it is one of the most least effective social distancing measures um, for this virus. But I think there's that's the rational hat and then I think there's the emotive um, feeling of being like you're not supported as a teacher. Um, and I think that's that's been challenging and I think that 
that there could have been more done, particularly for those who are at higher risk, um, to encourage them to not be in the school environment if they're, you know, if if there's not an urgent need for them to do so. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's going to be a very different learning environment, both for teachers and students going into term two. What type of uh, processes or, or um, you know, pedagogic, pedagogical kind of um, strategies do you think will be rolled out going into this term with students, you know, mainly being at home and having to do kind of the bulk of their learning uh, supervised by parents or guardians um, and mainly obviously online? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting times. Um, and we do have precedents for this. We've got, you know, school of the air in Australia, uh, given we're a big country, we've obviously had distance education in, in you know, it's um, for many students around the country. Um, I, from some of the, the models that you've heard so far of schools that have gone online, they've done a lot of Zoom sort of classes in the morning, and then there'll be independent working throughout the day. Um, and it seems like there's a lot of Actually, there's a lot of positive opportunities for teachers to do more um, uh, individualised support because mm. if you can do sort of one session in the morning for everybody and then throughout the day you can actually help individual students through either calling or emailing or checking in or seeing what they're doing online. So there will be some really interesting innovations that actually come out of this this period. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for, for online learning is actually just keeping kids motivated. So mm. that's going to be a big ask for parents in terms of just helping them when they get stuck, um, showing interest in what they're doing, sort of checking in that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so it is going to have to be a bit of a collaborative effort between teachers and parents. Yeah, and it kind of, um, you know, raises questions around the, the different strategies that can be employed when you're teaching online as opposed to face-to-face, because -face. I know there's been conversations about, you know, the the relative um, challenges of synchronous learning, for example, you know, when you're all plugged into a live Zoom meeting with a teacher kind of running through the lesson of the day compared to going away and sort of doing that work yourself, then coming back together as a group. Do you think there'll be changes that perhaps, you know, ultimately... Um, once we're through this whole situation, will result in some better processes in that way? Oh, I would I would love it if that was the case. I mean, one thing I'm really interested in is, you know, because of, because of this crisis, it probably will mean that teachers will need to pull some of their resources together. So it mm -hmm. might be, for example, that one teacher for Year 7 English does beams out on Zoom to four English classes and then the other teachers actually have more time to then work independently with students throughout the day, which would be actually a really big change to how teachers work, but uh, arguably could have a lot of efficiencies and it could be a lot more effective. Um, but I think on the whole, given how quickly teachers have been, have been asked to do this, I, mm. I suspect that the quality of the learning that we'll probably see in term two won't be as high quality despite teachers' very best efforts. Um, I think if you look at some of the online charter schools in the US, um, they have a lot of charter schools that beam out online to students um, who learn remotely and they're, unfortunately their learnings haven't been great. Um, mm. So I think that it's going to be one of those instances where we'll just have to bed down and do the best that we can. Um, and, you know, it's a good opportunity for parents. I think there's a real opportunity here for parents to get involved in their kids' education because we know yeah. from the evidence that kids who come from families where they see that their parents set high expectations for their learning, but that has a really big motivational impact on kids. Um, and so, you know, that could be one of the positive things that come out of this is that we all actually understand a bit more about what teachers do. Mm. 
Yeah, and I mean, there's been uh, quite a bit of attention on those doing VCE and sort of VCAL at the moment and what uh, this, I guess, in some ways delay or um, drag potentially on their learning at this kind of crucial time might mean for their prospects going forward and getting into the courses, um, you know, they want to get into and that sort of thing. Do you have a sense of whether it is kind of, you know, for example, those students towards the end of their schooling journey or those at the, the earlier end for whom, you know, particular learning outcomes are are really important. Do we know who's more likely to be most disadvantaged through this process? That's a good question. I think that so year 12 students, I think actually there's some pretty good precedence for uh, assessing year 12 when there's been school missed. So, for example, like kids who have been in hospital in year 12, you know, we've got all those, like that happens all the time. We've got, you know, flexible kind of marking arrangements that now will be kicked in at scale for all sort of year 12 students. So mm. having more teacher discretion about what their year 12 secondary certificate and their marks should be, um, where it can be, you know, they'll take into account their year 11 results as well as year 12 results, um, potentially less weight on the end of year exams, things like that. Um, so I actually think the year 12 arrangements will, will work pretty well. I think it's I'm just unfortunate that a lot of year 12 kids will have to readjust their expectations and they've had huge uncertainty, the really stressful period. So I think no one, you know, even there, there have been some claims that, oh, uh, the kids this year will be marked easier than other years in year 12. And I actually just think, look, I don't think anyone would have wanted to be doing year 12 Absolutely during not. the year of the coronavirus, <laughs> if you could choose. Um, um, but if you're talking about kids who are sort of earlier, so if you're talking about sort of kids in grade prep, um, if you look at the evidence about online learning, it's the kids at the the young, really younger years who who do less well, mm. and which makes sense. You know, they really need that relationship with the teacher, and we also know that like the early years learning is the most important. Um, so, if you to really think about where to prioritise resources, that has to be a huge focus. And then I think the other area is also the kids who, you know, might be in year nine, year ten, um, looking to go for a VCAL certificate. And perhaps, um, you know, kids who might be feeling a little bit disengaged with school and then this is just a big whammy on top of that. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of kids who may not go back to school after this period, like who might just go, this is actually too hard. Um, you know, I was already really far behind and now I'm going to be even further behind and I've been stuck at home in a really bad learning environment and schools, you know. So that has to be a huge focus as well. Yeah, Julie Sonneman is my guest, School Education Fellow at the Grattan Institute. We're talking all about the implications for our education system amid the global pandemic. And I want to um, pick up on, uh, I guess, what you're alluding to there, Julie, with, I guess, existing inequalities throughout society and and the potential for these to be magnified through this, um, this process of online learning and that sort of thing. How can we best manage that to ensure students sort of don't get left behind and, and aren't sort of, um, you know, don't fall through the cracks um, while this online learning and, and home learning is is becoming, you know, the, the way we're doing things? Yeah, so we know that disadvantaged children from disadvantaged families, um, they have problems, you know, with online learning because of basic things like internet and laptops and just devices. So there's been a couple of state governments that have announced, you know, we'll be giving all students access to devices and things like that during this period, which is, you know, a first step to help sure that they can have access to the best opportunities that they can, mm -hmm. I think. And then there's things like online tutoring that you can do, which can also help to some extent. But I think realistically, I think we need to be assuming that there are going to be big learning losses and that when schools reopen for 
particularly for kids who are already behind, you're going to need a lot of extra support. And that means investment, government investments in things like uh, tutoring, so really intensive tutoring programs that can be run before or after the, the school day, and also um, things like summer schools. So, mm. you know, that are big in the US that we don't do as much here, but if it is the case that school reopens in term three, that maybe in the term two holidays you have really intensive programs for kids who have fallen behind. Um, but this is going to require extra money and we governments need to be setting aside that money because at the moment there's a whole heap of money going out the door really quickly in stimulus packages, but I think in a few months' time that's going to dry up really quickly. So governments need to be on the front foot thinking and advocating for disadvantaged children to make sure that they're the group that don't lose out you know, I think we've got so many other competing interests at the moment and that are completely valid mm. about um, teachers not wanting to um, be on the front line and be exposed, and I completely understand that. Um, and you've also got, um, you know, parents' genuine concerns about, and as a society, we don't want to... We don't want to spread the virus, so that has to come first. But at the same time, we've got to realise there's these huge trade-offs to certain groups of people in society that will have very real impacts for their lives. So we need to make sure that we're thinking of them too. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an issue that's, um, I mean, going to continue to reverberate for a long time, you'd think, and particularly for those students who, you know, are at various stages of their schooling at this particular point in time. And um, let's hope that investment comes further down the track when it's most needed. Um, thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R. Thank you. Thanks. That is Julie Sonneman, the um, School Education Fellow at the Grattan Institute, talking all about the state of our education system now and into the future. And I know um, a lot of people out there are probably grappling with what this home learning and online learning situation looks like. And um, good luck to you all and, um, and best of luck going forward. Triple R. And I mean, it's clear out there that the social distancing and self-isolation rules introduced by the federal government and state governments are in our best collective interest. And while we're certainly not out of the woods yet, signs of the coronavirus infection rate slowing suggest that Australia's response is so far having a positive effect. But with these measures comes a significant curtailing of our rights, activities that were perfectly normal just weeks ago, such as visiting friends and family, heading away for the weekend or playing team sports can now attract pretty hefty fines. It's up to police officers to exercise their judgment and discretion in enforcing these measures. And we've already seen some instances where the application of these enhanced police powers have come into question. Anthony Kelly is CEO of the Flemington Kensington Community Legal Service. They run the Police Accountability Project and have turned their particular attention in these times to tracking the use of emergency powers and policing through this current health crisis via a new resource called Policing COVID. To tell us all about it, Anthony joins me today on the line. How are you going, Anthony? Good morning, Dylan. Yeah, going good, thanks. Great to have you back on the show. And um, why did you feel the need to establish uh, Policing COVID? Well, our work over many years has been tracking um, the policing of different communities across Melbourne. And one of the things that we've come to realise really strongly is that uh, communities uh, get policed differently. And uh, there are many uh, instances and um, many um, cases where police approaches are applied or used in a, in a discriminatory way. And so our initial concern, as soon as we realised that um, as the lockdown was progressing and as emergency powers being introduced, that there was a very real danger that uh, the policing of these unique public health measures would be um, 
potentially policed in discriminatory or disproportionate or unfair ways. And so we wanted to find a way of tracking, that, of monitoring how policing was being experienced by different communities across Australia. So we put in place pretty quickly, really. We got it um, up last weekend, um, a, a like a reporting site, a website, covidpolicing.org.au, where... You know, where people right across Australia could uh, make a quick report about, about what happened to them, how they experienced a, a particular police interaction. And uh, we've put together a, a network of, of uh, policing academics from various universities and departments around around Australia to, to, um, to back up some of the analysis. We've got a bit of a coalition of human rights and uh, legal advocacy organisations behind the site. And it, it basically it uh, allows us to to get a, a sense of what's going on in various communities around Australia uh, and how people are experiencing the sort of policing uh, that we're under at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, you've been um, monitoring um, police accountability for a long time through your police accountability projects. Um, but do you, uh, I mean, what's your sense of the way that um, your current efforts to monitor police approaches with these enhanced powers has been taken? Because I know there's been a lot of rhetoric from governments and the like that, you know, Australians just need to kind of get on board with these changes. We're living in an emergency situation and now's not really the time to overly question what's happening. We just need to do what's in the common good. What's your sense of, I guess, that, that idea and, and how it relates to policing? Yeah, so it's really important to recognise that we're not looking for loopholes and people um, that are reporting to the website aren't looking for loopholes either. They're genuinely... Uh, or just about all of the reports from our understanding of people who are going about um, observing social distancing measures are under the impression that they uh, are doing the right thing and then they're being confronted by police who are either telling them something is unlawful or they shouldn't do something when it's not actually the case, when it's not actually unlawful, and are giving them restrictions or questioning them or interrogating them in a particular way that has harms in itself. And so, like any um, government or, or state-sanctioned measure, measure the, uh, the policing of these public health measures, it's really important that it's done in a way that is fair, that's aligned with public health outcomes, that it's non-discriminatory, that it's lawful, uh, and it's clearly understood. So all of those things that we're trying to, trying to track, and it's, it's in the best interest of police to make sure mm. that they're approaching this in a very... Um, trust building and um, uh, a way that, um, you know, respects um, people's individual uh, rights and dignity. And that's, it's actually, it's also lawful that police, are, the onus is on police to ensure that their policing is uh, conducted in a non-discriminatory way. They have obligations under the Race Discrimination Act, for instance. So, um, so what we're finding, though, through the reports that have come through, we've only got about 30 so far over the first week, um, that is that people are generally trying to do the right thing, but police are telling them a whole range of things that aren't and are, and are behaving in a particular way in mm. these instances, in these cases, that's not necessarily helpful or um, and has its own level of uh, problems. And I can explain some of those um, with some of the cases, if you like. I can run through some of the yeah, things yeah, please we're, do. We're seeing, yeah. So, for instance, uh, people who are out exercising. Um, for various reasons, might need to sit down or might need to stop um, and or they might need to travel to a place of exercise. And all of those things are, are perfectly okay. 
uh, permissible under the current legislation, at least in Victoria, where, we, where most of the reports are coming from so far. So we had a, a person, for instance, in Northcote who was out exercising with his carer, had an acquired brain injury. Uh, he, you know, he he's has mobility uh, issues and so had, had to sit down for a period of time. And uh, police came up to him and asked him why he wasn't moving and, um, and, asked, and um, suggested that he go home. And he had trouble communicating with them and had to rely on his carer to communicate with, with him as well. Mm. And, um, and a similar case was a, a woman who drove uh, a kilometre to a, in the nearest sort of grassy area where she could do some jogging and then was questioned about why she was driving and um, was told that she couldn't, she couldn't drive to a place of exercise by the police, which is not true. Um, so that, that up, seems you know, to be a, a fairly substantial misunderstanding because I know there's been a couple of reported instances of that, but potentially in addition to those ones you've mentioned, where um, I was reading this morning, um, a jogger was told they weren't allowed to drive somewhere to go for a run, and and someone, if memory serves me correctly, driving to Red Hill to go for a solo bike ride, thinking they were doing the right thing, but then were issued with um, a fine, which um, may have been retracted. I'm not entirely sure, but it seems like there is some misunderstanding about what these rules actually are. Yeah, that's right. And it, it's understandable that police, um, you know, are still learning these very rapidly changing and introduced laws. And so some confusion is certainly understandable. Mm. What we're noticing, though, is that it has a real impact. So for some people who get um, questioned by police and approached, they're, they're more fearful and less likely to exercise. Again, one person with type 1 diabetes uh, who went out uh, at night time when um, you know he felt safe enough to, he couldn't sleep, he went out, and it was on his way back home when he prescribed it being yelled and berated at by police. And he, he reports that he no longer feels like going outside the house because he's scared of being um, you know, accosted in the same sort of way. And he's worried now because he's not getting the sort of exercise that he needs as a person with diabetes. Um, other people talk about being stressed, being... Um, Feeling like they, they were interrogated when they were when police officers stopped outside their house and asked why their child was chalk drawing on the sidewalk, um, and a, a whole range of things that really a lot of people in our community aren't really used to this level of policing. Uh, it's quite ironic, really, because a lot of the communities that we work with, Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre, um, are these are the sort of reports that we get regularly from young people of African backgrounds and communities that have stopped very routinely and very regularly and have a whole lot of police interaction in their lives. Uh, they report that it affects their, the way they move about their streets. They feel, feel fearful uh, going to their place of work because there's a likelihood that they'll be stopped by police. And it mm. has a whole range of these psychological and socio and even health impacts that people are more and more recognising. And the sort of policing that... Um, communities that we work with have been experiencing for a long period of time is now being experienced by a far greater range of people. Mm. Um, and that's really interesting. It's something that um, uh, we haven't really seen for, for, for some time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, do you have much of a sense? Obviously, there are, um, you know, groups that aren't traditionally or, or haven't been expected to be stopped by police that's happening to them. And that's perhaps why it's gaining a bit more coverage than it might normally. Do you have much of a sense from, I, I guess, the 
uh, contacts you've you've received through the policing COVID resource um, or from Victoria Police around kind of where people are generally being fined, if there's any kind of geographic um, factor to this or demographics or anything like that? Yeah, so that's a really good question because at the moment police are very selectively releasing um, information about who they're stopping and where. So New South, Wales are, New South Wales police are releasing a lot more information than they are in Victoria currently. Mm. Victoria are releasing uh, very select um, examples of the, of the police, to the, uh, of their policing to the media. What we need to really see and what we're about to call on chief commissioners across Australia to start doing is to ensure that um, comprehensive de-identified stop and enforcement data is provided to an independent agency for analysis so that this sort of widespread police stop data, where they're happening, uh, why they're happening and what the outcomes are, can be analysed against available populations, against the local demographic data. And it's only through this sort of widespread data analysis that we begin to see a picture of whether policing is being used disproportionately or in a discriminatory way. Um, so this is something that's really important for police forces to start doing is to both collect the data appropriately and then to release it to an independent body for analysis. Uh, and that's, that, that's the sort of way with, that will begin to distinguish whether, um, you know, what's happening across Australia. Mm. Speaking with Anthony Kelly from the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre and the Police Accountability Project, talking all about their policing COVID initiative that's um, being run through a number of um, legal institutions and organisations to monitor policing uh, in the global pandemic environment we have and the enhanced powers that have been introduced by the Victorian government to go along with that. And um, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned before, this initiative is not about finding loopholes. People are, of course, still, um, you know, expected to comply with the social distancing rules and, and they're obviously there for a reason. But what if people are approached by police and feel like they perhaps are given a fine that isn't necessarily deserving or in the rules? What can they do? Yeah, that's a good question. So a lot of legal bodies and um, firms and um, community legal centres are uh, providing much more information now as the as the command. But basically, uh, like any infringement, you can challenge it. So if you if people feel like it is unfair uh, or inappropriate uh, for any reason, then they can go to a community legal centre. They can talk to a solicitor. There's usually some information on the notification that they get the infringement uh, about how they can um, challenge it. It might be a matter of. Uh, writing a letter or it might be a, le a matter of uh, asking to take it to court or have it reviewed. And in some cases, if it is um, you know, issued inappropriately by the police officer, then it could be withdrawn, as some, some have, as uh, you noted before. Uh, but they can certainly be challenged. So if you're feeling like it's unfair, um, certainly raise that and ask for a review. Mm. And it seems like, yes, some have been withdrawn and whether that's down to the media t attention they've received or, you know, a genuine acknowledgement that it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, a, a just application of the police powers. I'm thinking, for example, of the learner driver being fined for being too far from her home, for example. So it seems there is some some kind of process of the police working through this and acknowledging that where fines have been, um, have been given to people in some circumstances, they perhaps weren't justified. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so more um, so aside from the one-on-one -on -one of the individual cases of unfairness or inappropriateness, 
there is that also um, more impactful discriminatory nature mm. of some of this policing. So we have had reports, uh, one from Tasmania, where a homeless woman who often sleeps in a hotel or a backpackers was out walking a dog, and she was told by police to go back to her hotel and abandon the dog. And she was uh, refused to comply with that. She didn't want to leave the dog and was thrown in a um, jail for the night and is now facing charges. So one of the things is that police stops can often result in charges um, that wouldn't have, arise, wouldn't have arisen um, aside from, that, from the initial police intervention. So when police stop someone, um, the, uh, it's usually discretionary and they, they can choose to who to stop and who not to stop. So if there is bias and discrimination playing into that decision to stop, then um, part of the process of criminalising or criminalisation of, of particular communities is that charges are opened up in that case. So charges like offensive language or, you know, if a person is um, searched and found to have some something on them, then it becomes more likely that they'll end up with um, charges or further contact with the criminal justice system. Mm. So we're really conscious that these sorts of um, policing behaviours need to be done in a, in a non-discriminatory way. And um, the only way we're going to do that really is through to tracking it through this um, release of data. Yeah, that's right. All the more reason to, to see exactly what's happening and where and, and whom, who is getting caught in the crosshairs of this. It's a really important initiative, Anthony, and um, congratulations on setting it up at such short notice. I mean, so many organisations and individuals are uh, putting a remarkable amount of work into getting really important things running in this, um, you know, very strange and troubling era we live in. So congratulations on getting that going and thanks for joining us today on Triple R. Thanks very much, Dylan. Absolute pleasure. Anthony Kelly there from Flemington Kensington Community Legal Service talking all about the Policing COVID initiative. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Ever since the National Cabinet came into being, we've been told that the Commonwealth and Victorian governments would have more to say on residential tenancies. So far, Scott Morrison has announced a National Cabinet agreement to introduce a six-month moratorium on evictions, but only Tasmania so far has translated that into legislation. There's also a lingering uncertainty about how tenants who have faced significant loss of income can, can continue to afford to pay rent and what happens if they go into considerable arrears. Heather Holst is the Victorian Commissioner for Residential Tenancies. She has a long history in the housing and homelessness sector and has always been a strong advocate for the right to housing. And I'm very pleased to have Heather back on the show. How are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks so much for coming on. And um, I mean, this is the first time we've had you on in your newish role, which isn't actually that new anymore. <laughs> You've been doing that since 2018. But, I mean, it feels like that um, this is the most important time, you know, in, in recent memory or for a very long time at least to be an advocate for the rights of tenants. It really shows up very starkly, the connections between tenancy rights and homelessness, you know, just really obviously actually, mm. which is why, why I was pretty interested in this role actually. Yeah. yeah. 
And I mean, people have faced huge loss of income virtually overnight. And we know so many people um, live week to week. And even with the government supports that have been announced, the money might not sort of reach people's bank accounts still for a few weeks in terms of the job seeker payment. What's your sense of the scale of the problem? And, and I guess how we can try to reduce the impact on tenants who face a real risk of homelessness in these times? Um, I think this is a very broad problem. Uh, I think a lot of people are using what little bit of savings they had. They're postponing bills. Um, they're getting loans uh, where they can from family and friends. Um, one of the problems is we, uh, a problem for government trying to make public policy and estimates of how much to spend on things is that um, you don't know actual figures and the quantity of debt mm. um, and also the quantity uh, which owners are going to be able to um, and willing to reduce rent for a period. So it's actually a real devilish problem in terms of how much is needed to um, bridge this gap. It's, it's a, one, a big one. Yeah. And I mean, I've had uh, probably more sympathy for governments over the past few weeks than I've I've had in the past. They've been compelled to make really tough decisions in hours that, um, you know, decisions that would normally be stewed over for years in, in some instances. But it feels like this issue of residential tenancies has kind of been, in some respects, pushed off the National Cabinet agenda a few times. We've heard there's going to be, you know, more to say on it, but at least in Victoria, don't quite yet have a lot of certainty about what sort of support might be available for tenants. Um, what's your sense of how that's played out and, and whether and when we might see what that kind of package looks like? Yeah, I, th I think you're right, Dylan, that there's been an expectation for a while now of, of more detail. I think there was a lot of um, relief um, when um, the Prime Minister announced the eviction moratorium, which is two weeks ago yesterday now. Um, it was a Sunday, yeah. Um, but of course, uh, public policy isn't uh, done that way, you actually need the law, the regulations, um, potentially packages of financial support to come in. Actually, um, probably while you were on air, New South Wales have announced their um, package. Uh, I did hear that this morning, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Um, again, uh, it's hard to tell the real detail, but it looks like $220 million available for residential tenants and the same amount again for commercial tenants, which has been one of the interesting things that the two have been quite conflated, um, the commercial tenancy, residential tenancies pieces, um, which I, I can understand in broad categories that governments are having to work in right now, um, but they're actually kind of different factors at play. Mm. Um, yeah, you can certainly ruin someone's business by not giving um, some rent relief right now when businesses are precarious, and that's livelihoods, that's jobs. Um, but you know, it's actually homelessness on the other side of um, of that one with residential tenancies. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah su super interesting. Um, and it looks like the New South Wales uh, measures are also two-month-long measures, which is fairly short in the scheme of all this, mm -hmm. um, and don't uh, do anything to guarantee people not having pretty big debts at the end that they then will face evictions over. Because that's a big question, isn't it? I mean, it's it's one thing to have a moratorium on evictions, which, you know, is fantastic that people won't be forced out of their home if they can't uh, keep up with rental payments, you know, as a result of uh, COVID-19. But what happens at the end of that? I mean, you could potentially have thousands of dollars racked up in debt that, you know, you may not be able to pay off for a long, long time, if at all. That's correct. And um, so that's, uh, for, for my 
for my money, that's as significant as the uh, prevention of eviction right now um, mm. because a lot of people will kind of go, well, look, if I'm just going to make a big debt, which is going to ruin me in the private rental market for some years anyway, um, you know, because we also need assurances that no one's going to go onto tenancy databases um, out of all this and therefore have a difficulty getting new tenancies because they defaulted on a tenancy in this period. Um, you know, it's it's all wound up together and we'll be quite quickly, I hope, at that stage where we're looking to kind of recover and people are looking to go back to work um, and those measures will be lifted. But then if they're left with a heap of debt, it's just a deferred eviction. Mm. Mm. Part of what the, the Prime Minister has called for is for landlords um, and or agents and tenants to kind of negotiate in good faith if reduced rent is required. And I understand from a limited reading of those um, changes or announcements coming from New South Wales today that there's a bit more of a compulsion to, to sort of head into mediation if tenants can't meet their regular repayments. But I guess broadly speaking, how viable is it to negotiate with your landlord or agent if you're a tenant? Because, I mean, we know that the rights of tenants um, you know, aren't necessarily looked after in, in that type of relationship. Yeah, exactly. So um, we've heard some good stories where, um, uh, you know, landlords have been on the front foot and offered um, rent relief, um, you know, really have understood the state uh, that the country's in right now. Um, but we've heard a lot of other stories where actually there's been doubling down of, of sort of negotiating position where... Um, and, you know, that's the third party to many of these, which is the property manager, mm. the real estate agent, um, around, you know, uh, three quarters of residential properties have a property manager in the equation um, who uh, are paid on a commission of how much rent goes through. Um, you know, so we're, we're not hearing the best stories in many cases about um, the way a lot of property managers are behaving. Again, sometimes uh, pretty neutral or helpful. But, uh, but in too many cases are kind of advising a very tough position. Let's wait and see what the government comes up with. Let's hang tough for now, um, which, you know, may be considered smart business, but it's pretty hard when you're trying to work out if um, you're going to have a place to live or a massive debt out of it. Yeah, and, and even trying to enter into those types of conversations with a property manager or a landlord can bring a whole lot of stress in themselves. They don't always go, you know, very smoothly. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And this is where that, um, you know, business meets uh, someone's home, um, again, comes comes crashing together. Yeah. And, I mean, oh, I should remind listeners, we're speaking with Heather Holst, the Victorian Commissioner for Residential Tenancies, all about the state of play for residential tenants um, here in Victoria amid COVID-19. And, I mean, there's also sympathy to be had for, you know, some landlords who might, um, you know, not necessarily be incredibly wealthy, but might be facing um, a reduction in uh, the tenants paying rent. What sort of certainty is there for them in terms of being able to potentially access insurance and and that sort of thing. Do we have measures in place that can sort of help ease that process if landlords are, you know, really concerned about losing their property if they themselves have lost work, for example? Yeah, that's right. Everyone's in a bad, bad situation here. Um, the insurance, um, the common, commonly held landlord insurance products make it difficult um, for owners to give reduced rent. It makes it difficult, uh, sometimes at the present settings, impossible to claim on their policies uh, for rent foregone if they haven't proceeded to evict uh, their tenants. 
So there's actually a big structural problem with this quite widely held landlord insurance um, that the insurance industry themselves need to address. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's not not good. Yeah, and I mean that's 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 a whole in a way another another story that needs to play out, isn't it? With real estate and insurance industries kind of battling over this, but um, you know, often the ones who bear the brunt of that are tenants who are kind of the meat in the sandwich. That's right, and as you say, some um, uh, landlords as well who are wishing to do the right thing but feel mm. constrained by their the advice they're getting from their property manager, the insurance policy won't pay through, you know, a lot of certainty is stripped away um, from people. Yeah, and and we've spoken to you, uh, so mainly on this program in your former capacity um, as executive director, if that's the correct title, um, at Launch Housing, and you've worked a lot in the homelessness sector before. I guess um, just briefly, based on your past experience in that particular sector, what do we need to be really seriously thinking about in terms of ensuring that we don't have, um, you know, a huge increase in in the the number of homeless people in Melbourne in particular and, and broadly across the state? Well, we need to make sure that the eviction moratorium is real. Um, and that means eviction on all sorts of grounds. Um, so I think the New South Wales government might have also banned evictions for non-payment of rent, but... Um, you know, there's a lot of other ways to um, evict someone. And and when someone's evicted, they don't just go away, you know. Mm. Um, you know, and, and that's the big contributor to homelessness. Um, maybe they manage to, to get another property to rent. More likely they're going to pile in with family and friends for a while under these circumstances. But um, the the connection between evictions and homelessness is is absolutely massive. Um, and so that's why we've got to be super careful right now to get the, the arrangements right. Uh, and one of the problems here, of course, is that the rental market is made up of heaps and heaps and heaps of people who own two, three mm. properties, one property, five properties, but not big um, holders. And so it's a lot of people um, in the picture uh, who need to be kind of brought along and understand um, what the situation is. It's not like, say, the transport industry where there's a few big players um, who can be spoken to quite directly, get a deep background, work out what to do based on that. It's quite tricky. Yeah, and, and with the, the New South Wales announcement today that the package um, you know, to support uh, tenants, both the commercial and residential tenants, do you think that Victoria will kind of follow suit and, and announce their plan at some point in the near future? Because it feels like we're, we're, we're waiting and, and things, you know, really need to change pretty quickly. Oh, I'm sure there'll be announcements in, in the other states and territories. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there will be. Um but, you know, some of the complications we've been talking about are, are pretty real. And I guess um, you've got that sort of difficult trade-off between getting something out quickly and uh, having it kind of as well-crafted as possible. Mm. Um, but, yeah, people, every day that goes past with people, uh, tenants not having certainty, it is really, really tough on people right now. Yeah. And I mean, amid these these times, I've been trying to latch on to silver linings and how we might, you know, be having to force through some changes that make us think about, uh, you know, the type of society we want to live in and how we can improve things for the better much more broadly. And I guess in the case of tenancies, I mean, there's been calls for um, advocates for a long time to give tenants more rights and, and um, you know, bring in sort of more long-term tenancies and that sort of thing, given so many people across the country are renters. Do you think that there will be some positive developments that come out of this, that kind of shift the ledger of power a little bit back um, in the direction? 
attraction of tenants? Look, I hope so. Um, in the case of Victoria, we're partway through implementing some of those changes. First uh, of July um, is when the, the rest of those come through, including mm. no longer having um, the evictions on no grounds. Um, so as as the coronavirus catches us right now, there still are there still is a possibility to evict someone for no reason. Um, I would be much happier if we were after the 1st of July when that was implemented, you know, <laughs> right now. Um, we've got rights to have pets as tenants now that we didn't a year ago. Uh, Longer-term tenancies are uh, enacted now. So there's, there are some things, but it's partway through that process, which it, it will be – I find it quite unpredictable how, um, how that will go forward. But I do um, – I do think the more that we can understand each other's perspectives, um, and, you know, there is a real theme, as you say, Dylan, of a kind of almost a common humanity um, coming through this on the sort of bright side of it. Mm. Um, on the dark side, there's people who are finding home isolation a lot easier because their places are a lot nicer and a lot more amenity, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right, isn't it? Because it's much easier for those with, with a nice kind of roomy place to self-isolate um, than it is for those in very cramped conditions or, you know, potentially people involved in family violence situations and, and so on. Um, you know, right. some of those inequalities get really magnified through this process and, and it's, a, it's a really complex area. And I worry about people in really overcrowded situations as well. Mm. Um, and we know that a lot of lower paid workers, when they have retained work, are having to go out into the, you know, the wider world and all the... Um, you know, kind of advice about distancing and, and so on is pretty hard to follow in every case uh, with some of the work that's still being performed. So, yeah, the, the overcrowding piece, um, which is really where, again, where residential tendencies and, and homelessness overlap as well, um, is, is pretty alarming. Um, yeah, so it's showing up uh, quite a few cracks we've got. But um, to stay on your kind of optimistic side, Dylan, <laughs> hopefully the, the kind of showing these up at this time um, will be productive of, of people realising something needs to be done about, about some of these things that can't be tolerated, really. Yeah, and I guess at this current stage, uh, if there are people out there who are renting and, and are facing really tough times, what sort of advice would you give for where they can potentially access help and, and uh, you know, get some more clarity about the security of their, um, their housing situation? Well, first and foremost, know that you can't be asked to leave um, or be made to leave without VCAT uh, making an order to that effect. Now, VCAT is still operating, uh, the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal. Um, it's operating by phone, but it will hear residential tenancies matters. So know, know that as a, as a first thing. Uh, so even if a, an owner may say, like I've heard, uh, look, I need the place back in two weeks' time, I've decided to move back to, to this house, I'd rather um, see out the virus here than mm. in, my, in my flat. They can't do that. And, you know, VCAT will be be there to hear the matter. Um, if it does come to that, make sure you get uh, involved in that VCAT case. Um, keep records of all the exchanges. Keep, keep polite and civil. Everyone's got to kind of try and... Um, be even more decent yep. <laughs> um, than before. Uh, don't don't you know lay something down that can uh, you know be used or hurt people or used used against you. Um, and I'm hoping that soon there will be more certainty for Victorians, um, as there is for Tasmanians and now uh, the, the New South Wales people. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's um, fantastic advice to have, Heather. And thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R and talking all about the issue and, um, you know, what we might see in Victoria going forward. And hopefully there are some more supports for, for people. I know many of our listeners are renters and would be eager to hear um, what type of package might be available for them going forward. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks. Heather Holster, Victorian Commissioner for Residential Tenancies. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.